Episode 39, You Are Not an Apostle. Rethinking the Bible with Jack Pelham. Welcome to Rethinking the Bible. This is an audio podcast where we apply reality-based thinking to interpreting the Bible. Reality-based thinking is my name for a philosophy that seeks to make constant use of honesty, rationality, and responsibility in seeking out the reality of things while trying to avoid common errors. And for the record, I define reality as the state of things as they actually exist, as opposed to one's perceptions, beliefs, or wishes about them. And you should know, this is a serial podcast, so it's best if you start from episode one and work your way forward from there, because we lay some foundational principles up front and you'll be lost later if you skip them now. Well, it's a rainy day here on July 5th, and I'm glad to report that the nonstop week of um, fireworks seems to be over. (laughs) We live in a town in Montana that has the state's uh, biggest fireworks display, and people come from all over, and it seems like it lasts um, an hour and a half. It doesn't start till 10 o'clock at night once it's dark. And uh, we live not far from that. And so uh, while we don't go ourselves, we get to enjoy all the noise from it at home. Uh, and not to mention all the people in town who buy fireworks and shoot them off themselves for three or four days at the law allows. So I'm a little tired today from that um, and quite glad that it's over. It's a peaceful day and you may hear the rain in the background. I'm sitting in the great room in my classroom space uh, as I record today. Uh, uh, some, a couple of, um, good developments going on. I have, uh, finally in the last week or two recovered a website of mine that got attacked by a nasty malware attack uh, last year. And we were finally able to get it up and restored today. And it is called Bibleinvestigation.com. And the idea there, um, it, it's basically a blog type site where I, have uh, posted over the years articles about the Bible, uh, the idea that I am uh, trying to actually investigate things and not just you know opinionate about them, um, to not just be declaring uh, you know pontificating and and making decrees about things, but actually trying to check it out and be somewhat scholarly about uh, things like that. So uh, that site has uh, lots of material on it. You might want to poke around there. Um, I, I have to warn you though. It's been running for several years, and I'm sure that not everything there is correct. So uh, it is very difficult to keep going back behind oneself to tweak everything you've ever written. And so if you were to find uh, errors there or things you think are errors there, uh, keep in mind I might not believe that same thing today exactly. So it might be worth shooting me a line to ask uh, rather than just getting mad and stomping off uh, that heretic. So anyway, it's nice to have that project back up. Uh, it did take a hit or two as far as the formatting of things. And uh, uh, so some of the pages there, um, for technical reasons with which I won't bore you, are in need of being updated in some ways so that they look normal. And um, you may find them a little funny looking. But I believe you'll find most of the information is still there. Although 
there may be some missing images. Uh, for some reason, some of those disappeared. So I'm glad to have that back up. Uh, another thing that's going on, I told you in a recent episode that I might uh, tell you more about it soon. Uh, you notice that I make frequent reference to the idea that if you want to understand the Bible, you need to know the whole Bible. And also, if you, you need to understand the culture that produced it best you can. And so that also includes getting into some of the extra biblical writings uh, that uh, some of the Bible documents themselves point to, that they make mention of them and such. And so um, I have been studying those for years, and I don't have enough study time. It's always frustrating to me. Uh, one difficulty is where do you find them all put together in a place, and then how do you make it c convenient to read them and to um, to listen and such. And so I am um, about to, well, I've begun work on a project that will bring these extra-biblical works all into one website so that people can read them all conveniently from there and even listen to audio files of them. So uh, that's my daily routine for my health. I walk an hour every day and I need to be able to uh, make the best use of that time. So typically I listen to podcasts or to recordings of uh, ancient documents and things like that so I can stay, um, or not stay, but become uh, very well informed about what all they were writing about. So uh, this new site is, um, we're working through the conceptual ideas of it now and making some decisions on how to proceed, but I hope to have it launched, I don't know, sometime in the next few months, and it will grow uh, as uh, time goes by. However, the idea of having an extra 100 documents or 200 documents that you can uh, learn about and become familiar with uh, easily that's the idea behind this website. And uh, it's funny because um, mostly and primarily I'm doing this for me so that I can have um, regular access to them and such. And I'll tell you more all about that as we go by. But that's a fun project that uh, is just part of my own study routine. I thought I needed to put these things together in one convenient place uh, where they are uh, reliable and easy to search and all that kind of thing. So I'm uh, pretty excited about that, and I'll definitely be talking about it as we get closer to launching it in its uh, phase one version. So uh, that's all I have to say about that. Uh, today's episode is called You Are Not an Apostle, and um, it's meant to be a bit provocative, the title. Um, I'm going to read my description just so as I, as I get my head around where I'm going here in this talk, uh, a great deal of confusion exists in the churches today because of the careless attention that is given to the various roles that people played in the first century ecclesia, which is church to most. That's the Greek word, and we'll talk actually talk about that word in this episode. Uh, without careful attention, it's easy to assume upon ourselves roles and promises that were given to someone other than us. This episode takes a detailed look at the role of the apostles and shows how it was a crucial and special role and how we ourselves are not apostles. So that probably sums it up pretty well. What I'm going to be doing is reading an article that I wrote and posted at BibleInvestigation.com on September 2nd of 2013. And uh, its title is, You Are Not an Apostle. 
And so I'll be reading it um, word for word and then stopping as I do from time to time to say something else, um, something more than what I wrote then. And then at the end, I will um, talk until I'm tired of talking about it. And so that's the routine. I don't know how long this will go. If it exceeds an hour by much, I'll split it into two episodes, and uh, which is also quite the routine. So anyway, here we go. Here's my article from 2013 called, You Are Not an Apostle. You are not an apostle. You know this already, of course. So why am I writing an article to prove it? Well, interestingly, an awful lot of believers who already know they are not apostles routinely assume upon themselves various promises and duties that Jesus gave to his apostles and not to anyone else. So I thought it would be good to set the record straight on a few matters about which there seems to be widespread confusion. First, some basics, uh, some basic facts about the apostles. Number one, the word apostle means one who is sent out. Uh, from apo, meaning out or away, and stelline, to, meaning to send. So apo, out, away, Stelline to sin. So out or away to sin. Out or away to sin. Uh, you can read more here about it if you like, and there's a link to um, the uh, Blue Letter Bible and their entry on that word. Anyway, as we shall see below, the apostles were sent out by Jesus. They were expected to deliver his message impeccably to the entire world. And I have world in quotes here. And then a parenthetical, uh, whatever amount of the surface of planet Earth that was supposed to cover. Uh, they were calling people everywhere to follow Jesus. And I'm going to read a scripture in, in a minute here. So this is me, you know, obviously going off script. Uh, I wanted to talk about um, this little parenthetical comment about whatever amount of the surface of planet Earth that was supposed to cover. Uh, the reason this is here is because I think a lot of people make a very fundamental mistake. Uh, starting in Genesis 1, they see the word earth and they assume, oh yeah, I know what that is. That's planet earth. And so uh, I am uh, completely convinced it, it is not that no Bible writer ever spoke about planet earth using the word earth. In fact, I can't find really where they talked about planet earth at all like the whole thing, the whole globe. I don't see that. A lot of people will assume that they're seeing that all the time, but they don't have any evidence for that. It's just an assumption. And of course, it's an easy one to make. And if you are in a careless fellowship that doesn't really deal with details too much, uh, it's easy to make that, that assumption and never have reason to question it. Uh, however, uh, you will see that they worsen out to the ends of the earth, and what did that mean? Uh, I'm going to tell you it did not mean to South America and to China and to India and such that those regions were not part of the, the world, you know, in quotes, that they were writing about in Bible times, uh, in, you know, in the Bible crowd, that Bible culture, the, meaning the Jews, basically. Uh, so uh, anyway, I... I'm starting out with this first scripture in Mark 16, uh, starting in verse 15. And he said to them, that's Jesus, uh, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. 
Interestingly, oh, this is my own note here. I see. Uh, interestingly, the word for church is ecclesia, which means those who were called out. So perhaps it's no mere coincidence that the apostles are the ones doing the calling out on Jesus' behalf and that those who responded were the called out ones. I want to make sure that that this point is well made here. Uh, First of all, pardon me, my clicking, I'm actually making corrections (laughs) to my post. Um, Okay, so the word ecclesia means the called out ones, and that's that's a literal, uh, you know, what are the component words in it mean? Now, how was it used? Well, this is your general term for a meeting, like a, a town meeting, where the people were called out, hey, y'all, we're going to have a meeting, y'all come over here, that sort of a thing. Well, Jesus used this word to describe his um, uh, followers, right? His, um, his devotees, his students and such. And so uh, collectively they would be described this way as the, the called out ones or, you know, the assembly, the, the meeting, this, this sort of idea. And so one of the questions for us will be, ah, well, if you were to ask Jesus about this, would what would he tell you? How would he explain the word ecclesia? Would he tell you that it just means assembly? Or would he say, well, uh, yeah, it means assembly, and the reason I like this word is because literally it means you know the, the called out people or the called out ones, right? So... We have the apostles who were to go in the whole world and proclaim to everybody, uh, to the whole creation. And so then people would respond to that, and they were called the called out ones, those who would join up. They would join the cause. They would uh, believe in Jesus and uh, live in his image. You know, they would make this uh, pledge of a good conscience toward God that, yes, I want in the new covenant. I want to be part of the image, I want to live this way, I want to be like Jesus, and so forth. So uh, the called out ones is what they were called, and here you have the apostles calling them out, and this was their job. And Jesus appointed them and gave them the name apostle, which again means uh, to those who were sent out. So they were sent out to call people out, hoping this makes sense. So going on, I am. Um, Number two, the apostles were personally appointed by Jesus. Even in the case of Paul, who came considerably after the appointment of Peter and the others, Jesus had a personal meeting with him. Here's the start of some of the passages in support of what I'm saying uh, with an occasional note inserted. And so uh, I'm going to start here in Luke uh, 12, or Luke 6, verse 12. Now it came to pass in those days that he, that's Jesus, he went out to the mountain to pray and continued all night in prayer to God. And when it was day, he called his disciples to himself and from them uh, he chose 12 whom he named, he, he also named apostles. So here we have a little terminology. We have disciples, that's your basic student, you know, follower type, in person, a learner from and then you have apostles. And so he's got multiple disciples here. He calls them, and then from them he picks 12 of them and calls them apostles. So we can see right away that apostle must mean something more than just a disciple. 
And of course, the word disciple does not mean uh, the sent out ones. Apostle does, right? So we're starting, we're setting the stage here. So he goes on, uh, Simon, whom he also names Peter, and Andrew, his brother, uh, James and John, Philip and Bartholomew, Matthew and Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon called the Zealot, uh, and Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who also became a traitor. So here they are named. Uh, there are 12 guys, and they were named, uh, and they're called apostles, and we know their names and something about them, you know, who they're related to or where they're from, something like that. So these were individuals, uh, and there were only 12 of them uh, at this point, and we'll talk about that. Uh, here's another passage in Acts 9. Uh, as he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly, this is the story of Paul and his conversion, uh, and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. Then he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? Then the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I'll stop here in case you don't know what goads are. They are sharpened sticks that were used to help prod along uh, an animal who was pulling a cart or a plow or something like this. So in, in other words, Jesus is saying to him, I've been prodding you along and you're just resisting. You're kicking against these goads, which of course is even more painful. Like, you know, why are you doing that? They're supposed to prompt you forward and you're kicking against them. So um, anyway, it says, uh, talking about Paul. So he, Paul, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? Then the Lord said to him, Arise and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. Now, this is the conversion of Saul uh, and Paul, uh, who one being the, the Hebrew name, the other being the Greek name. And it's, he's well established as having been one of Jesus' authorized apostles. And uh, in fact, Paul himself writes in 1 Corinthians 12, talking generally about the ecclesia and how it was structured, he says in verse 28, And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, uh, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Uh, so you should note here that not all were apostles, but only a few. And uh, they're not only first in the order, uh, but he says, he uses the word first. Uh, and, and God has appointed in the church, that is the ecclesia, first apostles. So this idea, they are at the top role there, uh, obviously short of God and Jesus uh, themselves. And so... Uh, here they are uh, on the top of this list. Now, and this is a very interesting list. We could spend a long time on this. It has apostles, prophets, teachers, and then it goes more into what the roles do. Uh, that is miracles, gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. So it's, it's quite an interesting list, and uh, it makes one wonder whether apostling is a thing one does. And so, you know, profiting, 
right? But it's interesting the way the grammar is set out here. And yet we see that these, there seems to have been some manner of hierarchy uh, among those so appointed in the ecclesia. And the apostles are first. Number three, apostles had miraculous abilities. Here are six passages about this with some notes. So I'm going to start in Acts 1, verse 8. And this is Jesus talking to the apostles right before he ascends into heaven after his um, resurrection. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And so my note here says this was more than the power to cast out demons and heal diseases, for they had already been given this power in Matthew 10, verse 1. So the idea here that he says to his apostles that they would be given some sort of power, and apparently this power had something to do with them being his witnesses uh, in Judea, Samaria, and, well, in Jerusalem, of course, and then Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth which uh, that passage, or that, that phrase, to the end of the earth, uh, that is not new to the New Testament. Uh, that passage, or that uh, phrase, you'll find throughout the Old Testament a lot. You'll also find it through a lot of the extra-biblical works, uh, the Jewish writings, the Second Temple period writings, and things like that. And so, uh, and what I think that means is to the to the far edges of that region that the bible story seems to be all about uh if you know we go back to genesis 1 and verse 10 where god makes the waters get back and then you have what he calls dry land and that dry land he then calls earth and so I'm of the opinion the whole, even the dry land thing was a bit figurative in nature, that he's not exactly talking about, oh, look, here's some dirt where there used to be water. Uh, we'll call this dry land. I think that he's uh, making these uh, fallen angels back off. Get out of here. I'm going to do something here. And sure, I'll call this dry land figuratively, and I'll call you the waters figuratively. And uh, that's... a uh, a hypothesis of mine and how to interpret Genesis 1. Uh, but regardless, this idea to the end of the earth, um, uh, if you think about it, it's not hard to figure out that there's a problem. If you have a globe that is um, an oblate spheroid, where is the end of that? It has no end. And other passages talk about the ends of the earth, plural. Well, it doesn't have one end and it doesn't have multiples. And so uh, you might want to talk about to the end of a continent. That might make some more sense to us, but then that's not the whole globe now, is it? Right? So uh, this is a little bit complicated. It requires some further thought if you want to understand the full thing. And yet uh, our main point in this is that the apostles were to receive power. They had some ability that non-apostles did not have. And then um, going on to John 14, Jesus again talking in verse 12. Most assuredly, I say to you, and this is him talking at the Last Supper to the apostles. I say to you, he who believes in me, 
The works that I do, he will do also, and greater works than these he will do, because I go to my Father. Uh, My note here says, I know of no believer in this generation who does greater works than Jesus. Although this could have been true of the apostles with their signs and wonders. If the Bible were a complete record of what happened, I get the feeling we'd have lots of accounts of the apostles doing mighty works. And of course, that's sort of a summary sentence, and I cannot explain that to you uh, in the same way that I understand it, because I got my understanding by reading all the New Testament, right? So you need to go read and see, well, how frequently do you think they were doing uh, these special things? Uh, So, but this idea that you, uh, first of all, if you believe in me, uh, and again, he's talking to them, right? He's, he's, you could read this and say, um, most, you could interpret it this way. Most assuredly, I say to you, if anyone ever to live on this planet Earth uh, believes in me, that guy or girl, no matter who they are, uh, will definitely do the same works that I've been doing. Well, you could say that. You could argue that, and then I would turn right around and ask you, Okay, here's Hermione again. Let's see then. Let's see you turn water into wine. Let's see you uh, raise the recently dead. Let's see you raise the longtime dead from Sheol and not just from wandering about the earth, right? Um, let's see you heal leprosy. Let's see you do these other things, right? And so uh, you can be... Um, a slave to literalism here says, well, it says he who believes in me. Yeah, but who was he talking to when he said it? And then how do you talk? Are you exacting every time you say anything? Or do you sometimes uh, know that the context of who you're talking to and what you've been talking about is understood by everybody? In other words, if we were to come uh, uncover your private conversations with people and put them through the same literal ringer and demand that they be uh, literally um, um, expected to mean everything that they literally say, would we find out that, oh, you, you yourself don't talk that way. You don't say things with exact literalism all the time in ways that are precise and never wrong. Uh, when taken that way. I hope that makes sense. Um, This is not my best wording on that. Uh, However, okay, so the verse again, most assuredly I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. And greater works than these he will do. Okay, there you go. That's the thing. Let's see you do greater than what Jesus did. And we could talk about, you know, what does this greater mean? Does it mean he will do, you know, more of it than I did? Or that the things themselves will be greater than the things I did? Well, this is one of those passages that makes me think, oh, wait a minute. Do we even know how much the apostles were doing? Because he's talking to them about it. And he's about to kick it off with them. You know, in fact, he's told them to go. Uh, to expect to receive power uh, in Jerusalem, uh, they were to wait there until it happened. So then they start to do these greater works. 
So apostles could do this. And I have a further note here. Oh, no, I had already said, I don't know of anybody in this generation who does greater works than Jesus, or even the same works as Jesus, or the same signs and wonders that the apostles were doing that we can read about in the New Testament. Uh, again, I had written, if the Bible were a complete record of what happened, I get the feeling we'd have lots of accounts of the apostles doing mighty works. Here is Acts 2, verse 43. Then fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. So my question, why only through the apostles? Why weren't all the believers given such powers to do these uh, wonders and signs? And then again in Acts 4, verse uh, 33, And with great power the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Meaning great, great gift, great giftedness. That word grace is from the Greek word for gift. And so great gifts were upon them. Well, that's the language of these miraculous powers. So we have great uh, power and great grace, great gifts were upon them all. And that's all the apostles. So again, why only the apostles? Uh, a note here, this is probably literal language concerning miracles and not figurative as in uh, what someone might say today, what a powerful message today, Pastor. You know, this idea of power, they could do stuff. It wasn't just saying stuff. And so we need to understand that. Uh, we need to not read back into the scriptures what is our modern experience of things, but we need to take the words for what they say and what they meant then. Uh, Acts 5, verse 12. And through the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were done among the people. My note here says, we don't know just how many. It could have been an exceedingly large number for all we're told. We just don't know. Second uh, Corinthians 12, verse 12. Truly the signs of an apostle were accomplished among you with all perseverance in signs and wonders and mighty deeds. Now this is Paul writing to a congregation in Corinth that he himself began in that city. And he makes mention of something that's pretty important here. The signs of an apostle. The way he talks about it here uh, tends to suggest that you could tell who's an apostle and who's not because an apostle could do the signs of an apostle. And he says uh, to the Corinthians, uh, these signs were accomplished among you in your presence with all perseverance in signs and wonders and mighty deeds. So again, this is not something that I see people doing today. Uh, my note here says this seems to have been a standard feature of apostleship. There is no promise of such powers for all believers, and there's certainly no evidence that all believers have such gifts or that it ever was so. And of course, you know this about yourself, right? You know that you cannot do that. And yet, so many people like to keep this fuzzy and blurry and blur the lines and such. Okay, number four, uh, general facts about the apostleship. Uh, the apostleship was only for a limited time. In no place does Scripture lay out any plan for an apostolic succession. 
and that that's the fancy scholar word or term for um, a system where you have means of appointing new apostles once the old ones die or retire or something like that. You know, um, in the United States government, we have succession plan for how to keep the Congress filled and how to keep the White House filled, that um, we replace them when they die or uh, when their terms are up, we vote for more and such. Well, there is no plan in Scripture for apostolic succession. There are no instructions on how to appoint more apostles. And, of course, we already looked at how Jesus was the one who appointed them. So, uh, going on with my notes here, uh, once the apostles were gone, there would be no replacement for them. And there's some evidence about this in the scriptures. Um, Matthew 28, in what so many call the Great Commission, uh, listen to this, starting in verse 19. Go therefore, this is Jesus, of course, talking to the 12 minus Judas, who had uh, already killed himself by this point. Uh, This is after Jesus is raised from the dead, mind you. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. And again, uh, there's context to this. These nations, there were 70 or 72 nations that God uh, split up the world, spread them out after the Tower of Babel. And we're talking Genesis 10 and 11 here. And uh, he'd put angels in charge of these nations, but Israel he took for himself. And so... Now he's telling his apostles, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things I've commanded you, and lo, I am with you always to the end of the age. So uh, there's a lot here. We could spend a lot of time on this. Uh <laughs> I'll mention this one thing in verse 20 where he says, teaching them to observe all the things I've commanded you and lo, I'm with you always. Well, how are we going to take that? Because you could say, uh, as I did the first time, I emphasized the word you like this, uh, teaching them to observe all the things that I've commanded you, which might mean that that also includes this very passage. Uh, to go and make disciples of all the nations, you see? Or is this a reference to former commands, former teachings? In other words, uh, you might express it this way, teaching them to observe all the things I've commanded you. That is, all the things I've been telling you to tell them. So that would not necessarily include this. See, and a lot of people, you know, one uh, church I used to go to, the leader saw himself in the role of an apostle, which he was not. He did not have the uh, powers of the apostles and had no appointment by Jesus, right? Uh, However, uh, somebody told him, hey, look at this. Um, This would include the very list, the very thing he's telling them at the moment, teaching them to observe all the things I've commanded you. Well, hey, Lord, didn't you just command us to go make disciples of everybody? Well, gee, yeah, I did. Okay, so that's included in what we're supposed to teach them too, right? And then, of course, the answer to this guy was, yeah, right, it it is. And so uh, he tried to make out of his entire church a whole bunch of uh, evangelizers and tell them they're all under the Great Commission and this is part of your command. Uh, However, uh, that is not warranted by the text here. 
and I cannot find any other place in the whole New Testament that you could even pretend is some sort of a mandate for all the believers, the non-apostle believers, to go out and be evangelizers in this way. Um, This is not me saying I'm against evangelism. No, no, not not at all. Uh, But if you're going to tell me it's commanded and this is your proof text for that, this is bad business. Uh, You can't prove that from this. That's the point. So uh, anyway, so he promises that he's going to be with them too. And and that's why we're really looking at this passage. Because again, our point number four is the apostleship was only for a limited time. So uh, after he says, teaching them to observe all things that I've commanded you, uh, he goes on, and lo, I am with you always, comma, to the end of the age. Well, what in the world does that mean? Are the apostles still here? No. Okay, so is he still with them? Well, if if you're going to understand being with them in the context of, okay, guys, look, I'm leaving. I'm about to go to heaven. You, well, here's your job to go make disciples of all the nations and um, I'll be with you always. Well, wouldn't you think that that whole being with them always thing has to do with their job as making disciples of all the nations? Well, yeah, you would. And yet he puts some sort of a time stamp on this. I'm with you always, he said. And of course, the American literalist would say, see, it says always. Therefore, we still have apostles today, right? Yeah, but you got to read the context. The very next clause says to the end of the age. So I'll be with you always until then, you see. Okay, well, when was the end of the age? Or when, when is it? You know, at what time was that supposed to happen? Well, uh, I think there were two ages in view uh, when he said this. Uh, and I'm going to read you a passage that show those. I'm going to read you Matthew 12, verse 32. And we're picking up in the middle of an argument or a, a discussion. And the first part doesn't have anything to do with what we're talking about, but the second one does. So here's Matthew 12, 32. This is Jesus speaking. Uh, Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him. And here we go. Either in this age or in the age to come. So at the time that Jesus spoke these words, he thought there was an age that was happening and there was an age that was yet to come. So that seems pretty clear. Now, when Jesus tells them, tells his apostles in Matthew 28, that I will be with you always to the end of the age, which age do we think that might be? The one that was then happening or the one that was yet to come? Well, I think it was the one that was happening. That would be interesting to hear somebody make arguments about, no, it's the other one, it's the age to come. But um, uh, we'll skip, skip that for now in this one. So, uh, so he's looking at two ages. And uh, my further note says Paul would write uh, that they were at the common 
terminus of two ages. That is, the end of one age and the beginning of the next. You know, if you think of a, of, of a timeline um, that, I don't know, the, the Articles of Confederation uh, began in what year? 1777, 78, I forget exactly. And they lasted until uh, 1789 or so. So you have a beginning of that era and then an end of that era. Is it making sense? Why am I asking you like you can answer me back? Anyway, so uh, this idea, well, Jesus talked about an age and then an age to come, or this age and the age to come. Okay, well, uh, shall we assume that the one ends and then the other begins right away? Or, of course, there's always the possibility there's some sort of overlap and this age is passing away and the new one is, is dawning or, you know, something like that. And that's quite a big uh, investigation. We won't get into that deeply today. So, anyway, they're at the end of one age and the beginning of another, generally, somehow, sort of, kind of. Uh, here's 1 Corinthians 10, verse 11, that has something to say about that. Uh, now all these things happened to them as examples, and they were written for our admonition, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. So you get that Paul saying it has happened. The, the ends are here. So what exactly did he mean? Well, we'd need to question him about this, right? However, you do get some idea of imminence. And with this, Hebrews agrees. Uh, listen to Hebrews 9, verse 26. But now, once, at the end of the ages, he, meaning Jesus, has appeared to many to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. I'm going to read that again. Uh, Hebrews 9, 26. But now, once, at the end of the ages, he has appeared to many to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Jesus, therefore, was promising to continue guiding the apostles' work only up until the end of that age in which they were when he gave the promise. It was not a perpetual state, but a temporary one. Hence, there are no more apostles today, and this is as it was planned. Well, this is a huge point. There just aren't supposed to be apostles today. He put this office and course you know there he has sent out ones and we'll look at some more of what they did but they had a job to do and it was only for a time well don't forget that because this is crucial you cannot understand the role of apostles if you don't understand that it was only temporary or at least in some regards it was only temporary because they are not still here they are not doing what they were appointed to do back then right? And this was the plan. It was not a mistake. It was not an accident. It wasn't an oversight. Uh, he knew that they would only be there till the end of the age. Number five, the apostles were the chief authority for the ecclesia. And again, ecclesia means the called out ones. It's what Jesus called the thing that most today call church. And I don't love that word. But uh, the apostles were the chief authority for the ecclesia on the earth. Uh, and my notes say, yes, Jesus was in charge of the whole thing, but he had appointed them to lead the ecclesia. Here is Matthew 16, 
uh, verse 18. Uh, Jesus is talking. I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, that's ecclesia in the Greek, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. And so you have to reflect on this a bit to say, oh, wait a minute. God's talking about having some manner of heavenly plan for what goes on. But look, he's putting these human apostles right in the middle of it. That they were some manner of middleman, like priests, like judges, of course, I, which you already know. I believe they did serve as judges over Israel during their... Uh, reign as apostles and so whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven in other words rules that you make down here these are rules that we've already made in heaven that that there's they're supposed to be in effect uh down here too and so you'll be doing our work you know whatever you loose here you know whatever you allow uh these will thing be things that agree with the heavenly rules they'll be allowable in heaven so you will be doing the work of heaven on the earth that's the way i interpret that first uh, corinthians twelve twenty-eight, and god has appointed these in the church in the ecclesia first what do you think comes first on the list apostles this agrees with the passage we read earlier first apostles uh or is this the passage we read earlier, actually? Now, that's funny if it is indeed the same same one. <laughs> and I'm scrolling, scrolling, scrolling. Oh, yes, it is indeed the same one. Naturally, it agrees very well. And you'll have to pardon my insanity, I would hope. So anyway, we're reminding of the passage. And God has appointed these in the church, first apostles, second prophets, third teachers. After that, uh, miracles, then gifts of healings, helps, administrations, uh, varieties of tongues. Not, on, uh, not only were the apostles first on the list, but Paul makes it certain that they are to be first in as much as he uses the word first. I made this point previously. Look at Ephesians 2 verse 19. Now, therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints, that is, the holy ones, and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building, being fitted together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. Well, this is uh, quite a passage with so much to be um, mined out of it. We won't get to all of it, but obviously the, the centerpiece of it, this phrase, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. So here, you know, we're getting an image of a building. It doesn't say temple, but the idea, and, and we know from other places, well, it actually, it does say temple. Uh, so, uh, and, and this was common throughout the New Testament to refer to the ecclesia as some manner of a temple. So here in the, the figures of speech here, 
in this metaphor, they're saying the foundation of this temple is the very apostles and prophets. And again, you know, we just read in First Corinthians twelve twenty-eight, God has appointed in these uh, these in the church first apostles and second prophets. And of course, prophet is someone who spoke on behalf of God, as guided by the Holy Spirit in some way. The apostles, those sent out, they are the ambassador sort uh, from Jesus. And if you're thinking about, uh, we are therefore Christ's ambassadors. Well, we're going to get to that in a few minutes. Okay, so without the apostles, there could have been no foundation to the ecclesia. And of course, you know, have foundation in quotes. It's figurative language here. Uh, whatever someone today wants to make of all that, this is the way that Jesus decided to build his ecclesia. So listen to Ephesians 4. Here's another passage about roles in the church, uh, in the ecclesia. Ephesians 4, verse 11. And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists. We haven't seen that role yet. And some pastors and teachers. We have seen uh, teachers, though not the pastors. Uh, And going on, for the equipping of the saints, that is the holy ones, and, and that is a reference to the believers. They were to be holy, set apart. Uh, so for the equipping of the holy ones, for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, perfect meaning mature, complete, uh, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Well, boy, howdy, we could have been looking at this all along and talking about the uh, living in the image. Because here the goal is very plain that the idea you're supposed to be a perfect man, or that is complete, meaning mature, you're grown up into what you were supposed to be by design. Uh, uh, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Not just partial Christ, but we're supposed to be fully mature like he was. Well, how were they supposed to get there? How was he going to build this ecclesia into this uh, temple in the Lord? Well, it was through apostles and prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. And what were they supposed to do? They were to equip the saints for the work of service, ministry, uh, for the building up of the body of Christ. Until what? Well, until such time as they would all come to a unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. So they would know Jesus, they'd be unified together, and they would be, they would be as if altogether a perfect person, a fully grown mature person, uh, just as mature as Jesus. So what was this job of the apostles? It was to oversee that, to get them where they're in uh, that kind of spiritual maturity. And again, on this list, the apostles are, are first. And he gave, and he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, and then so forth. So again, they're at the head of the list. Well, this should not surprise us by this time. This is quite on purpose. Uh, Revelation 20, verse 4. This is describing the holy city. 
the heavenly Jerusalem. And the wall of the city had 12 foundation stones, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. Note that in the Ecclesia, uh, their role in the Ecclesia on the earth was so profound that they even have special honor in heaven. And of course, if you're doing the math here, it says there are 12 apostles listed here. And yet we know that of the 12 Jesus had appointed initially, uh, one of them killed himself, and that being Judas who betrayed him. So which 12 uh, are these? Well, that's a great question. I don't want to get uh, too involved in that. We know that Matthias, of course, was appointed to take uh, Judas's place. And yet the obvious question comes up, well, what about Paul? He was also an apostle. Well, yes, he was. And yet he had a different role from the others. He was to go out and to evangelize beyond Israel and uh, Judea and Samaria and such. He went, uh, quote, you know, to the ends of the earth. He went out into this region as far as Spain, uh, which is part of the uh, Table of Nations areas. So, and then further question, well, what about Barnabas? He's also called an apostle. Yes, he was. And maybe some others were too. And boy, that's a whole big study. We're just not going to get into it today. However, these 12 were written, their names were written on the heavenly temple on the foundation stones. Well, we just read in Ephesians uh, 2 that the ecclesia, the church of Jesus, was built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. So this is quite a role. And what all did it mean? Well, that's what we're trying to get our hands around, at least generally right now. But this was not some casual thing. This was something really special. Uh, those foundation stones are not going to have the names of every pastor who's ever served over every church ever from, you know, Acts 2 until now. Not going to happen. It's not going to be every deacon. You're not going to have the names of all the elders who've ever served anywhere. No. In that heavenly city, the, the foundation stones are named for the 12 apostles, period. So something about that role was definitely uh, considerably more important than the role of some individual elder or deacon or Sunday school teacher or church janitor, right? Number seven, the revealing of Christ to the world and to the ecclesia would happen through the ministry of the apostles. Ministry just being a term for serving. I've already mentioned that the calling to those who were to be called out, that is the ecclesia, seems to have been done through the work of Jesus' apostles. And here are some passages that support this idea. Uh, John 8, this is Jesus' prayer uh, on the night of the Last Supper. Listen to this. Uh, John, um, John 12, verse 18. Uh, as you sent me into the world, he's praying to God, uh, I also have sent them into the world. You get that? Sent out ones. Uh, so uh, are those who sent out, meaning apostle. And then in verse 20, I do not pray for these alone, that is for the apostles alone, but also for those who will believe in me 
through their word. So Jesus' plan that people would come to believe in him, well, how would that happen? It would be through the word of these apostles he was sending out. And then there's more in Acts 1, verse 8. Jesus talking to the apostles before he is raised up to heaven. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses, or witnesses to me, in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Uh, Ephesians 3, 4. By referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. To be specific, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise of Christ through the gospel. So this one, let's dig it out. There's a nugget right in the middle of it. And it's talking about um, the revealing of mysteries. And he says that these things were not made known to the sons of men in other generations. But it, quote, has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the spirit. So notice that it wasn't revealed directly to everybody, but only to the apostles and prophets. That's very important to know. Second Peter 3, verse 1. This is now, beloved, the second letter I'm writing to you, in which I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the command of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. So he's calling them to remember what had been taught, and not only by prophets, but particularly here by the apostles. And these things, why weren't they taught to everybody? Why, weren't, why wasn't this word handed out to everybody? Well, it just wasn't. That wasn't the plan. That's not how Jesus wanted it. Remember the episode that we had recently about would you approve of how Jesus would run his kingdom? Well, here you go. Here, here is a great test of that. That he did not plan to hand out these mysteries and these teachings directly to every person, but he gave them to the apostles and prophets. And remember, the ecclesia was built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. So, this, it's just crucial that we understand this. If you think you're getting stuff directly in your head from God, uh, that is not the plan that Jesus had. So all this uh, so far has been under the heading of some basics about the apostles. And I conclude here that part with a note. So those are the basics. And surely you don't think you are an apostle. But what follows below is a list of bad assumptions made by many believers today in which they presume upon themselves either promises or duties that were only ever made to the apostles. So let's look at some of these. Uh, number one, uh, Christ ambassadors. And here's the famous passage. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 20. We are therefore Christ ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, 
be reconciled to God. Well, uh, I have much to say about this passage. In fact, I've said it in another article that I may very well uh, put up as an episode right after this one. Uh, in fact, I think it's called You Are Not Christ's Ambassadors, <laughs> something like that. So quite the direct title, uh, like the one of this present episode. Okay, so it says, We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as, this, as though God were making his appeal through us. If I tell you that's about apostles, do you get that? That God is making an appeal through the apostles? Well, yeah, uh, we've already been reading about that. That was their job. They were his spokesperson. They were sent out, sent out, you know, sent out from him, uh, as opposed to those who were called together, meaning, you know, the ecclesia. And so, but if you want proof that this is not Paul saying, hey, we, all of us, all of us Christians who believe in Jesus and are saved by his sacrifice and his forgiveness, uh, we, all of us, are Christ's ambassadors uh, as if God were making his appeal through us. That's exactly how so many want to understand this passage today. They're taught to understand it this way, and they're taught to stop reading right here. They cannot go forward and read, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. You can't, uh, don't pay attention to that part. (laughs) Pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. Okay. Because if you do, it wrecks this passage for the way that people normally use it. And I might say abuse it. Uh, This is one of those we slash you passages, and it's a fantastic one. And it is so easy to see what I'm talking about once you go looking for it. Uh, We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. There's we and us. Okay. And then we, again, implore you on Christ's behalf. Oh, well, what are you imploring? Uh, We're imploring that you be reconciled to God. Well, what are you talking about? We're already Christians. Now, this is 2 Corinthians. This is a congregation that had lots and lots of issues, lots of disobedience, a lot of sin going on, not dealt with well. And he's saying, we want you to be reconciled with God. Were the apostles reconciled with God? You bet. They were already on the team. They were already approved and appointed by Jesus to be his ambassadors. This is so not Paul saying all Christians are ambassadors. Nope. If you want to prove that, you can't prove that from this. You got to go someplace else. And I have not yet found such a passage as that. So this one, it was number one on my list. I don't have them enumerated here, but uh, this is such a common uh, mindless appeal. And it just shows, it tells on us that we're not reading the very scriptures that we try to quote and and claim, you know, claiming the promises, bro, this sort of thing. This is not for you. You are not Christ's ambassador. And so I, I will definitely try to do that other article soon and expound on this some more. Okay, the next one, whatever you may ask. Uh, this is John 14 and verse 13. This is at the Last Supper. Jesus is in the room with only the apostles. And here you go. And whatever you ask in my name, that I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. 
A lot of people go around, you know, quote, claiming this promise, end quote. Well, how's that going? Billy says, man, I sure do need a new car. And Larry says, well, bro, you know what Jesus said. Just ask it in his name and it'll be done. Yeah, I, I already asked for a new car. Well, did you get it? Uh, no. Well, keep praying, keep praying, bro. Be faithful. Well, look, dude, this promise is not for you. He just was not talking to you. You weren't there. He didn't look you in the face and say this thing. Just like he didn't look you in the face and appoint you as an apostle. The language here, whatever you ask in my name, that I will do. Let me ask you a question. Is this a promise completely without context? If they had asked him for a Rolls Royce or a Steinway piano, would he have given them one? Was it to be understood as a, a blank check with no further restrictions whatsoever? Suppose they had asked them to unreveal all the mysteries that had been revealed and to hide them from people. Well, that would be anathema to Jesus' mission. So is this a promise, just any old thing you want? Bring it on. Hey, Jesus, we ask in your name that you come back and get crucified again. Even though we know that you died once for all. No, it's it's not a blank check. You have to understand more of the context. Okay, guys, I'm going to be leading you through the Holy Spirit in real time to do the things I want you to do here. Remember, what you do here is, will have already been done in heaven. You will be working out my will on the earth. And so, whatever you ask me in the context of this job I'm giving you, I will do it. Can you imagine one of them saying, ah, he said anything. If you ask anything in my name, I'll do it. Therefore, I'd like to have banana pudding, please. Well, is that what Jesus was talking about? What reasonable person would overhear this conversation, understanding all of Jesus' teachings to them so far, and say, I'll bet he was talking about banana pudding and maybe even a pony for their birthday. If you want to cut this loose from the whole context of all their interactions up until this date, you can certainly do that. And you can do all manner of other <laughs> foolish things too. So cut it out. Uh, it was to them it was said, and even to them it would not have been true in that slavish, literal uh, sense that he would have given them just any old thing they could even imagine to ask. Now, this is understood in the context of there, are you doing the job that I'm giving you to do? Uh, even so, a bunch of people go around as if they're entitled today to anything they might ask God for. And in fact, they do ask God for a boatload of stuff if you were to look at their spiritual lives, it's mostly them asking for stuff. 
it's not so much them praising God and being grateful for things and and being a blessing to other people. It's them asking for stuff. And and a lot of them will claim this passage as a promise to them um, in support of that very habit. Well, that is not good Bible scholarship, and it's not honest and rational and responsible. Okay, next one. Nothing will be impossible for you. Uh, Matthew 17, verse 18. And Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of him, and the child was cured from that very hour. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not cast it out? So Jesus said to them, Because of your unbelief, for assuredly, assuredly I say to you, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, Move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. However, this kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting. Well, again, there's a lot here, and we can't look at all of this. But note that the disciples came to Jesus privately to have this conversation. So Jesus did not say the, what, what he would say to them, to everybody. He said, okay, look, you're going to need faith, uh, even as small as a mustard seed's worth. And uh, then, so when you declare uh, for a mountain to be moved from here to there, it's going to happen. And um, I do uh, believe that that Jesus w- would make that kind of thing happen. I do believe that he, it was his ministry on the earth. He was working it through the apostles. He was supplying the power now, did he mean this literally? Uh, in fact, why would it come in the the business of being an apostle that they should move mountains? Are they going to open a landscaping company, you know, earth-moving company? Uh, I think this may very well be figurative language here. And if you understand the overall context of the whole Bible up to this point, you'll realize, well, there's a lot of figurative use of mountains. They are some manner of seat of power, a special place where special things happen. Uh, You know, people go to the tops of mountains to talk to their gods and to make sacrifices and so forth. Moses receives the law uh, on the mountain and all this. So, in fact, um, there's an idea in the prophets that when they were eventually to flee from Jerusalem, having seen the abomination that leads to desolation, that the mountains would move uh, in order to facilitate their exit. And so there's something to chew on. Uh, So what exactly is he talking about? Well, that requires more study. We ought not to assume that this is a literal reference to literal mountains as if the apostles would have some need to do that. Uh, so, uh, anyway, and I would find it fascinating to discuss that at length, but not today. So, um, he's telling them that nothing will be impossible for you. Well, does that mean then that anything promised to the apostles is promised to every believer for all time in all places and circumstances? Uh, no, that does not logically follow no matter how much you might want to believe that. Uh, Going on, uh, I can do all things. Philippians 4, verse 12. This is Paul, of course. 
I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. Uh, in, ed- in any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Well, did Paul mean to say that I can build an airplane? And of course, you and I know that they didn't have airplanes back then. But is Paul saying, yes, I can do that? I can build a smartphone? I can raise the dead? I can raise every, I can conquer Satan. I can uh, make the world turn inside out. I can make the moon turn orange or, or pink or uh, black. Is that what this is? And of course, if you're, it doesn't take a genius to figure out that the word he uses here is I. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. He doesn't say, you can do all things through him who strengthens me. Or uh, he doesn't say, through him who strengthens you. This is not about us, nor about his audience in Philippi. It's about himself, right? Why then do kids write this on their football banners, you know, where they put it up on poles and run through it before the game starts? I've seen this uh, on YouTube or Facebook or something. Where did you get the idea that that's about you? In fact, suppose you do put this on your banner and you run through it, hooping and hollering and a raring and a snorting. You come down the field and you play the game and then you lose. How does that make any sense? You're claiming some promise not made to you about things never in view when it was made. In fact, this is not even a promise. This is just a a statement of fact by Paul. But if you would ask Paul, okay, brothers, sit down. I'm going to pin you down here. Did you literally mean you can do all things through Jesus? Like build a rocket and go to the moon. Do you really think he would have said yes? He might have given you some qualified answer like, well, that's not part of my mission. But if Jesus were to want me to do that, I suppose I could do that, right? Uh, And so one of the things the slavish literalist will do is to take this word all. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. They will take that word all and they'll say, see, it's right there. So therefore it means what I think it means. Well, uh, Paul's just one word away from saying, I can do all of these things. Because he just talked about a bunch of stuff. I know how to get along with money and without, uh, hungry or not, you know, having abundance or having need. I can do all things. Uh, well, does he simply mean I can do all these things? Oh, well, if he means that, then suddenly you don't have this magic verse here to invoke at your football game or you know through whatever else you're doing. And so this one gets abused a lot. Uh, it's a mindless thing. I mean, he, he, he doesn't even say you can. Uh, so 
this is extra unthinking for people who, who do this. Okay, the next one on the list. I teach you all things. Uh, John 14, 25. This goes back again to that Last Supper uh, talk that Jesus had with his apostles. Uh, These things I have spoken to you while abiding with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. Okay, so this is a promise here. It's made to the apostles, of course, by Jesus at uh, the night before the crucifixion. And this Holy Spirit, uh, he says, he will teach you all things. Well, does that include calculus and physics and Sanskrit and Swahili? Or is this to be understood within the context of their ongoing mission and their ongoing uh, training? Shall we take the word all here and run with it to the ends of all reasonability? Oh, he will teach you how to paint. He will teach you how to climb a ladder, uh, keeping three points of contact in accordance with OSHA guidelines. Really? Is that really what we think that Jesus meant to promise here. Indeed, why would they need to know that for their job of being apostles and calling people to this gospel? Why would they need to know that? Is that even reasonable to import all of that into this promise? He also says not only will he teach you all things, but he says that uh, to bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. Funny, uh, he doesn't say to bring to your remembrance all that was ever said to anybody. But it's a limited set of things here, right? The things I've said to you, he's going to help you remember that. Okay, well, that makes sense. Well, what about teach you all things? Should that be an unlimited list of things? Probably not. Uh, and, And if you claim that, oh, yes, it's unlimited, then my question to you is, okay, and this this promise is for you. Oh, you bet, bro. Okay, how's that going? Because I watch you like I watch other people, and you don't seem to know all things. So if this is really for you, what's gone wrong here? Okay, also from the same uh, Last Supper uh, discourse, we have guide you into all truth. John 16, verse 12. Again, this is Jesus talking to the apostles. I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will disclose to you what is to come. Okay. So, uh, guide you into all truth. That's the promise, right? And, of course, to whom was it made? To the apostles in the private company of Jesus. Do the apostles ever repeat this to anybody? Think through all the other scriptures. Do you know any passage where they promise the believers that the Holy Spirit will guide them into all truth? I don't know of one. But he goes on 
about this guiding into all truth. Uh, he will not speak on his own, but whatever he hears. Okay, so from whom is he hearing it? Well, either Jesus or God or both is what I would assume based on my understanding of the scripture so far. And so they will be telling him what to say, and then he will say it to them. Well, this reminds me of whatever you bind on earth shall have already been bound in heaven. In other words, it originates here, it goes to there. And so the Spirit was guiding the apostles into all truth. Well, again, shall we assume, let's slam these uh, extremities wide open and insist that this means everything. You know, he will teach you, he'll guide you how to draw the logo for Coca-Cola, which is uh, about 1,900 years removed from you guys right now. In fact, he'll even teach you uh, the recipe for Coca-Cola, including the identity of uh, 7X, which is the code word for the secret ingredient. Is that really what we think he meant by this? But he goes on, uh, he will speak and he will disclose to you what is to come. Well, if you want to play the same game, you could say, well, yeah, then it would definitely include the secret formula for Coca-Cola because that was yet to come. Or you could look at this reasonably and say, well, look, they've been given a job. Their job was to take the gospel to what was considered the whole world, uh, which we're pretty sure was not the whole planet uh, Earth. Uh, however, uh, it was about this. So what would he be guiding them into? Well, the truth regarding all of that. That's a reasonable way to do it, but many are not reasonable. They want not only to assume that it included just any old thing, but that it includes them, that this a promise made to the apostles was made uh, to them. Uh, going on, the Great Commission. We've already talked about this, Matthew 28, verse 16. Then the 11 disciples, let me read that again. Then the 11 disciples went away into Galilee. And you see where I'm going here already. Uh, it was not to everybody that these things were said that we're about to read. Uh, they went to the mountain which Jesus had appointed for them. When they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. Well, we've already looked at this. It was this command was given to the 11 disciples. They have not repeated it anywhere to anybody else, as far as we know, based on what's in the Bible. If you know of a passage, please share it with me. I will be astounded to see it because I have looked and looked and looked and I find no such thing. Is this me arguing that if it's not in there, therefore it didn't happen? No, not at all. I'm open to that. Uh, so what else do you have? Do you have some sort of fancy reasoning that proves it must have been the case? 
I just don't see it. Uh, in, in fact, here's the thing. I'll point this out. I, you know, one of the churches I used to go to that I've shared about um, in some detail in previous episodes, they were heavy on evangelism and high on accountability regarding that evangelism particularly. And they wanted to say, well, this is everybody's job. Every Christian is supposed to do this. And they would use this passage, uh, although with some illogic, to uh, try to prove that. Well, in uh, really wrestling with this on my way out the door, as I figured out a lot of things are wrong with this church and it's just not healthy to be here, one of the things that occurred to me is, well, hey, wait a minute. We were constantly getting rebuked about our failure to be sufficiently evangelistic or to be sufficiently fruitful in our evangelistic efforts. And uh, one would think then that this is a common human failure, just like any old other thing, laziness or lust or bitterness or, you know, whatever people stumble into. And so I went to do a search based on this assumption. And I thought, well, surely I will find rebukes in the Bible for people who had failed to be properly evangelistic. And so I searched and searched, and you know how many I found? Zero. And that's quite a significant number. If you think that, well, this is like pretty much the number one thing Christians are supposed to do, this should be their their prime pursuit. Really? Well, they got rebuked about doing a bunch of stuff wrong and about neglecting a bunch of stuff, and this was not on the list of things I can find. Maybe you can search the Bible a few times and find something I didn't find, but I will be exceedingly surprised. So again, I think we need to adjust our view and get more of a reality-based uh, idea of what was going on then because this just does not seem to have been a command that was given to everybody. So going on, uh, my next heading says, so cut it out. <laughs> and, and I go on, do you have any idea, Christian, how much strife and cognitive dissonance is caused by the careless application of these promises and commissions to those for whom they were never meant. How many believers feel bad about themselves because they've been taught to believe that if only they had enough faith, they'd be able to do whatever they want or get whatever they ask for? And how many people's faith has been wrecked by believers who are still too ignorant and immature to be good representatives, taking upon themselves the role of an apostle in some way or another. And I'm going to stop here and talk about this for a second. There are so very many, well, I'm the pastor here, and, you know, God picked me and put me in this role, and uh, I know what I'm talking about, and you need to listen to me, and we're going to clamp down on you if you don't, and we're going to fuss at you and rebuke you and tell you you're disrespectful and tell you you're opposing God if you oppose me. And if you don't listen to me, you're not listening to God. I am the voice of God for you. Although I will not say that in those words, 
but that's what they mean. That's how they see their role. Well, who put you in that role? And how much of what you think your duties are, are you commandeering from what was said to the apostles? Because you, dear friend, are not an apostle. You're just not. If you are, let's see then. Let's see your signs and miracles and wonders. Let's see you explain the scriptures. Jesus opened the apostles' minds to the scriptures uh, before uh, he ascended. Let's see you and your mastery of them. Because there were just so many uh, preachers who don't have a good mastery of the scriptures. So let's see then, right? If you have this, then let's see it. Elders do this. Pastors do it. Teachers do it. Maybe the occasional Sunday school teacher. I'm the one who's the teacher here. And how dare you question me? You know, so it, it just goes on and on. So I end out with this paragraph, the craziest part. The craziest part of all this is that we can prove by way of direct observation that these promises are not true for us today. Even so, so very many continue to tell themselves lies with regard to these things, telling themselves that they know or should know uh, does not apply to us. This habit, therefore, is dishonest, irrational, and irresponsible. For an apostle to have claimed these promises and commissions faithfully would have been wholly rational, that is, reality-based thinking, uh, for the apostles had indeed been so promised and commissioned. But for any non-apostle to assume these promises and commissions is an exercise in unreality, for they were simply not given to us. And if we're going to be honest and responsible, this simply has to be okay with us. We didn't all get to live in the Garden of Eden. None of us did, right? Or to ride on Noah's Ark, or to worship in the temple, or to sit at Jesus' feet, and nor did we get to be one of his apostles. We just didn't. We're not born into that time. Those things were only for a time, and that time has gone. Let us be content, therefore, to live in the time and circumstances into which our lives were created. And uh, that is the end of that article. I think that if just this one thing, that what this article addresses, if this could get fixed uh, today in all believers everywhere, you would have amazingly different churches tomorrow. This causes more confusion and consternation. It causes people to think, well, things aren't working out right for me as according to these promises. Therefore, something must be terribly wrong. Occasionally, somebody's going to say, yes, the problem must be that God does not really exist. And you just wrecked their faith by telling them that all these things are promises to us 
that should be expected to be fulfilled in us. And when they're not, that person that you set up to fail like that, it's going to fail. And some of them are going to blame it on, oh, God must not really exist. And is that bad thinking? Yes. But why were they pushed to the limit where they made that bad choice? Because of you and your church and what it teaches about these things. This is super serious. It has dire consequences. And even if the person doesn't go insane and say, okay, there's no God, they will often turn it back on themselves. Well, I'm just, I guess I don't have enough faith, bro. I guess I'm just not really a Christian or not really a believer. I don't know, you know. And there's so many people who are dejected like that. They're, they're all over the place and they're scared of everything. They walk around scared of their own shadows. They're self-condemning all the time. And they are not happy, thriving people. And uh, maybe they're not totally waylaid by that, but a lot are. And even so, for the uh, ones who aren't, it's a constant underlying stressor and aggravant in their lives. And people suffer because of this. Because, well, I've always heard, you know, these are the promises. We need to claim the promises. And, you know, some of this is just prosperity gospel people who are charlatans who make use of this. But, you know, these are cognitive errors. These are, it doesn't take a genius to figure out the stuff we've talked about today. And yet, uh, if, if you're like most American churchers, you never figured this out. Well, why? Well, just because you weren't thinking. I mean, it's no big mystery here. It's just like the Three Stooges. I can't see. I can't see. Oh, what's the matter? I got my eyes shut. If your eyes aren't open to these things, you're not going to see them, especially when you're constantly being told uh, a false version of, of what time it is and, and what they're like and you know what the promises are and to whom they apply. Uh, so if you're constantly being told the false things, uh, don't be surprised if you end up believing them if you're not looking for yourself in the scriptures and if you're not applying the outcomes, if you're not, you know, come let us reason together, if you're not, uh, each one should examine himself, right? And so the first one to present his case seems right until another comes along and questions him. You know, that, that is one of the most valuable tools I have is I know how to ask a question. Oh, really? Okay. Well, if that's true, then shouldn't we expect to see this other thing happening? And then suddenly there's crickets. Oh, I've asked a question that they can't answer with the prevailing wisdom of the group. Right? So this is such a huge problem. And so many people are suffering so needlessly. And because it is so mindless. And yet these mindless answers that people carry around like memes constantly repeating, he'll guide you into all truth, tell you what's to come. Well, that's not working. Are you, could you not even think long enough to realize it's not working for you? Well, no, bro, actually I, I can't. I cannot see that far 
ahead to think of things like that because I'm so busy trying to just repeat memes to myself. The memes I'm, you know, they're on the posters in the, in the hallway at the church building, you know, and all these little one-liners. And it is a major, major problem. So, uh, oh boy, uh, you know, you got to cut this conversation off somewhere because it is endless. This kind of mindless um, going on with the business of church without thinking about the particulars is just killing people. And it's not just that, well, yeah, I was always confused. No, this gets nasty. This gets down into people getting fired and rebuked and disfellowshipped or shunned or whatever kind of ostracized, whatever kind of words your group might use. Uh, all kind of things happen with this because of the senseless, um, mindless belief in things that just don't rationally apply to us today. And so I, I have a feeling I'm just seconds away from beating a dead horse here, but you are not an apostle, dear friend. You are not meant to be an apostle. You may have a great many very good qualities, things that are very lovable and admirable, things that are very needful in a healthy community. They may reside in you. They may be virtues that are in you already, they may be knowledge and skills and abilities that you have already, but you are not an apostle and you're not designed to be an apostle. You're not supposed to be an apostle. Jesus didn't appoint you as that. You have no commission. Neither does your pastor have the commission to be an apostle because that role was only for a time. And so, as you know, I've been chomping at the bit for this kind of thing we've talked about what was supposed to change between then and now and what has changed between then and now. Well, this is definitely one of them. We don't have apostles anymore. And if your church is not clear about this, you're going to have trouble and you're going to have serious trouble. You know, again, I told you, I knew a guy, uh, you know, as an acquaintance uh, who thought that his job in his church was to serve in the role of an apostle. And that hurt a lot of people. And it's just not true. He could not show the signs. In fact, they tried to say, well, we do recognize there's been a shift in the miracles. And, you know, they were a cessationist, a church who believed the miracles had ceased. Well, funny, when I read the talk about the apostleship, it seems like it, too, was a gift of the Holy Spirit in ways. And indeed it was. It was one of the special things that was done for a time that is not still done today. And yet the guy couldn't have the power he wanted if he couldn't tag the word apostle onto his role. <laughs> so it was a game. It was a power game. And whether it's done through sinister motives like that guy or just through ignorance, does it really matter? Oh, well, we're not doing it on purpose, Jack. We're just ignorant. Okay, and this is good because of what? So I hope this gives you a lot to think about. I know it does, unless you've already thought through all of this, and, and yay for you if you have. That makes you pretty rare uh, in our culture. So these things are so important to me. I am very glad to finally get to all of this. And so let me say this as I am... Um, uh, trying, obviously trying to wrap up this thing. Uh, 
with this episode uh, and with this whole podcast, all, all the episodes, uh, I'm not sure how many are listening. Obviously, we don't uh, promote this uh, widely, but I don't get much feedback from people. And uh, I have started very carefully trying to lay these foundational things down that the thinking is important, that being the image is important, and that there's really very little that's more important than those things and how we behave. Uh, from here on, I will turn more and more toward actual issues uh, like this one today that deal with uh, things we get right and wrong and things that need to be corrected and you know cut it out, right? Uh, so hopefully by this time you have enough of the foundations of this original Bible thinking that you can handle this and that you can say, okay, yeah, I see that. He's right. I'm not an apostle. I'm going to cut it out. I'm going to quit claiming these promises for myself or for my preacher and so forth. And so uh, we'll be doing things that are more hard-hitting like this more and more as we go. And that's quite on purpose. I would hope that you are ready now as an audience member. If you find all this to be insane uh, and you've just jumped in on this episode 39, uh, you need to go back to the beginning and uh, hear all of it and then come listen to this again because uh, these things do build on one another, at least generally speaking, and it's pretty important to get it all down straight. So that's today's episode. Thanks for joining in.